0: If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com.
1: Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details.
2: Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the
3: tika.com
1: Leah Goodrich is the managing attorney for housing policy in MFJ's housing practice, where she engages in litigation, policy analysis, and legislative advocacy. Prior to becoming managing attorney, she served as a supervising attorney at MFJ. Her litigation accomplishments include favorable decisions on a defective rent demand, chronic rent delinquency, and an amicus brief for a successful case on disability rights at the New York State Court of Appeals. Since 2018, Ms. Goodrich has served as a tenant member on the New York City Rent Guidelines Board, which determines the annual rent levels for regulated apartments. She is a frequent guest speaker on housing justice at universities across the country and abroad, including Duke University School of Law, Vassar College, and McGill University in Montreal, Canada. Ms. Goodrich's honors and awards include the 2019 New York County Lawyers Association Public Service Award, 2018 New York Nonprofit Media Rising Stars Award, and the 2015 Fulbright Specialist Award to Malta. She is a 2009 graduate of the University of California at Los Angeles School of Law, and we are honored to have her as our guest today.
4: This is the Black Information Network Daily Podcast, and I am your host, Ramses Ja. All right. So, uh, Leah, welcome to the show. How are you doing today?
5: Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I'm um, yeah. doing great.
4: Yeah, yeah. And you are a vision. Uh, yeah, thank you're you. all smiles. That, that, that energy <laughs> is infectious. So, I know we're going to have a good chat today. So, you know, one of the things we do around here, we like to do this, especially for folks um, where it's their first time on the show, is we like to give a little bit of um, background on the subject. So, uh, do us a favor, do our listeners a favor, tell us a bit about your background, your upbringing and sort of what led you to be becoming the managing attorney for housing policy.
5: All right. Uh, I'm a Brooklyn girl. I grew up in Brooklyn in New York. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I feel like when you're from New York and you're from Brooklyn, like you don't leave with I'm from New York, you leave with I'm from Brooklyn. Um, so I'm from Brooklyn, you're in Brownsville. And, uh, I, you know, grew up in what is considered, uh, a state regulated housing. It's called a Mitchell co-op. And, uh, really, I, 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 really enjoyed the community there. And then when I got older, I always knew that I wanted to be a lawyer. So when I got older, um, I went to law school and I make it sound easy, but of course I was the first in my family to go to law school. Mm-hmm. and. When I went to law school, which was at UCLA, I was there for three years and came back in that three year time period, the rents had jumped so high that for me, it became, that was the first time for me that it became very clear that we're in a housing crisis. Mm. And also because I had to look for my own housing at that point, I wanted to sort of like live on my own. So um, that was also the time when I was looking for my own apartment. Mm-hmm. And uh I ended up starting a project at Medrevers College for and did that for a couple of years to help nonprofit entrepreneurs. And then after um, a couple of years, I started working as a tenants' rights attorney at a local nonprofit legal service provider. And I've been doing that for 10 years, and that's how I managed. I sort of basically started as a staff attorney moved up to supervising attorney. Now I'm managing attorney. So here we are.
4: <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, you know, for folks that are uninitiated when it comes to housing and housing inequalities, people who may have grown up in very secure environments and haven't had not haven't had to move around, or maybe there's home ownership in their family that aren't intimately familiar with the crisis as you put it. Let's try to shed some light on what's going on in the country. So, let's let's go with how important is fair housing and what are the implications of fair housing opportunities especially for black and brown communities.
5: Okay, so housing in of itself is such a huge beast. Mm-hmm. There is, you know, one angle of it is fair housing which deals with anti-discrimination laws. Like for example, um, if you are trying to rent, uh, an apartment or buy a home and the obstruction there, they're not, they're refusing that to you on account of your race. That's a fair housing issue. And then there's another part of the housing beast, which is just housing affordability. Um, and, 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 you know, obviously, and I will talk a bit, you know, there, there's a disproportionate amount of um, evictions when it comes to Black and Brown communities, um, yeah. but you know, housing affordability is one part of it. Then there's home ownership, and so there's so many different pieces of the puzzle. I think in terms of housing, uh, what it looks like, you know, let me get to the end point in saying we need reparations. That's, that's okay. that. every okay. time that I do this work. I end up you know, saying to myself at the end of the day, we need reparations sure, because we, sure. can, we can do fair housing all we want. We can do all affordable But at the end of the day, um, what I see in my work is that the majority of my clients are black um, and that people would love to sort of simplify things and say it's due to individual behaviors. Right. And so, you know, what were they doing? Financial advice. But listen, you can't financial literacy your way out of, uh, $2,400 studios in Brooklyn. Like either you, either you have the money or you don't either you have the the family background from your money or you don't. And because of our history, a lot of us don't, and that's not, it's not anyone, that's not an individual fault. It's a systemic issue.
4: Right. And, and you know what uh, you, you mentioned, um, you know, the different ways that housing inequalities can kind of rear their heads. Um, But I've heard in this space, uh, I've heard cases made for systemic issues kind of being the source of all those things, you know, to one degree or another. Um, Housing affordability uh, is a matter of economics, um, individual, family, community, race, racial, economics, et cetera. And so, you know, those with the least money moving are often hit the hardest Um, in terms of housing discrimination. That's a, a little bit more obvious. Um, Housing availability, you know, these, you know, racism can work its way into those cracks. Um, if you think of Black people as less desirable tenants, you're less likely to rent to them. And, you know, there's a, a lot of uh, tentacles that end up kind of working their way into these equations. I'm sure that you deal with this, you know, quite a bit. So I guess what I would ask is, in your opinion, what, are the, what is the biggest issue or what are some of the biggest issues that we need to address?
5: One is, well, the biggie is, is in terms of home ownership. Mm-hmm. When black folks are trying to buy a home, okay. um, that comes up a lot in terms of just being blocked from being able to buy a home in a certain neighborhood. Yeah. The second is when they have the home and they're trying to sell the home. uh, There's a huge issue in terms of discrimination with appraisals. I was going to ask
4: about that. Yeah.
5: Right. And so, for example, if um, there have been several cases of where there is a black homeowner and they are attempting to sell their home and when they have a white friend, you know, use their white friend for pictures and for the process, the the same home in the same neighborhood is appraised at a higher value. But when they use their own, um, you know, they'll have up their own pictures of their own selves. It is appraised at a much lower value. And oftentimes we're talking about thousands of dollars. We're talking about thousands of dollars. The New York times ran a story in the last few months about an actual history housing professor, This is his actual expertise. And it happened to him and his wife. They're Mm. both professors and they're black. And, you know, it just goes to show, you know, it's not to, it's, we can't just say that everything is, every time we have conversations about racism, everyone goes, oh, it's class. It's classism. That's one piece of the puzzle, but it's also racism. And we see that play out where we see black folks who, even if they are higher income, it's racism still affects them in the housing world. Right, so home appraisals are one. Mm-hmm. Buying the home is another. Um, the other thing that plays out often, and it's it, it, you know, in terms of being a tenant, there is much less empathy, and there always has been for black tenants. And so, for example, this is you know, if you walk in any New York City housing court, you are going to see the majority of black and brown. People And I think, and this is just my personal opinion from having done this work for the last decade, that a big part of that is there is a huge machine, almost like a mill of a business of an eviction business. And some of it is not wanting to wait and work things out um, informally that many small landlords or you know, larger landlords have the capacity to do, but sort of just taking it to court literally one month or half a month. And they're just like, they've started the the eviction process. So I'm not talking about people who owe months of rent, but literally just starting the process almost immediately. Um, There are other types of eviction cases, such as nuisance. Uh, I've seen a lot of this play out in eviction cases that I'm describing where it's not about whether the rent is owed, but you know, it's about whether they have breached the lease or not. And nuisance is a big part of that. And some of these things are very racially coded. You know, they're like, oh, you know, uh, you have too many kids, they're running around. Um, and I personally don't feel like a lot of these cases would come up, especially in the same fashion, if the tenant was white. Uh, I had a case that involved domestic violence. My client was a DV survivor. And her partner had physically assaulted her, didn't live with her. The landlord started a case against her to evict her because the landlord said, you know what? Um, You're bringing in, it's your fault. You're bringing in um, this, you know, this noise that's going on. He called noise with the, with, with the partner actually assaulting her. Right. And so there's actually ACLU just to sum up uh, led A huge federal case about this, challenging because this mostly happens to black and brown women where they're trying to evict them based on DV, domestic violence, claiming that they're bringing in, that they're the ones bringing in, they're the cause, they're bringing in all of this commotion and the commotion being that they're actually being assaulted by their partner. That's a a huge example of where on the face of it, if you looked at it, race is not mentioned, but race is the big elephant in the room. And it is a lot of it to say, you know, it goes back to, we feel like you are, this behavior is dysfunctional, lack dysfunctionality, and therefore you are not entitled to housing. That shows up a lot in the work.
6: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. People don't always realize just how much their negative thoughts and experiences stick with them and weigh them down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapist anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com B-I-N today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P slash B-I-N.
3: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Hey
0: everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
1: We are here today with Leah Goodrich, the Managing Attorney for Housing Policy and MFJ's Housing Practice.
4: In New York, the housing, the housing market, the way of life, the the structures are very different from many other parts of the country. So what can other less densely populated cities and states learn from your work in New York City?
5: The first lesson is to have rent stabilization. There are only a handful of states that have rent regulation. And what that means is that the landlord will be prohibited from increasing the rent to whatever amount that they want. And yeah. so if I'm a landlord, and this is all fictional, and, and your rent is 1,200, and then it's time to renew your lease, and I would want to just renew it to 2,000, if there was rent stabilization, that would prevent that and say, oh no, you're only allowed to increase it by 5%, 2%. Um, the vast majority of states don't have rent regulation. And so what's going on now is that people their landlords are in- increasing rent, and then people are getting evicted, and they often don't have any other place to go. And so that is a huge um mechanism to be able to prevent evictions and keep people in their homes.
4: Mm. So how about this? Uh, I know that you work with the Community Economic Development Project at Medgar Evers College. So tell us about that, um, because I'm sure that we can get a little bit more insight into um,
2: what's
5: going on. Yeah, I mean, years ago, um, the project, unfortunately, is no longer um, operating. But years ago, I worked at Medgar Evers College. This was when I actually just uh, graduated from law school. And, uh, I started off by represent or not, I shouldn't say representing, but a lot of people wanted to start, um, by the way, MedReverage is one of the few city colleges in New York that, um, is predominantly black. Okay. Hence the name. And so, um, most of the students were also black or people of color and they wanted to start nonprofits or small businesses in their community. So that looks like barbershops. That looks like daycares, that looks like youth centers. But at the end of the day, a nonprofit, you need a board. You, you know, you can you, you can try to just start, it, but it's actually very difficult. And so my area of expertise, having graduated from law school, and this is what I had studied, was how to do that. And so I taught budding entrepreneurs, you know, their board, strategic operations, um, how to bring in the money fundraising, all of the language, because there is language that you need to use in order to fundraise and, and get money. Yeah. And uh, that ended up being a huge project to turn into the community economic development project.
4: So the reason I wanted to ask that question is because, as I mentioned, there are a lot of folks who maybe listen to the show and their, you know, housing is is not a thing they may, they, they may not think about. But after have, listening to this conversation that you and I are having, they might realize, okay, there's a problem here. There's something that we need to do, something I need to do to help out. You know, uh, we're not passing on generational wealth the way that we need to. We're not building our communities and fortifying our communities the way that we need to. We're vulnerable to things like homelessness and everything that that brings into the equation, you know, prison and, you know, criminal activity or getting caught up in the uh, prison industrial complex and so forth, or otherwise the criminal justice system. All of these roads kind of intersect funnily enough, when it comes to, you know, housing stability. Um, so I, I suppose the reason that that question is relevant and and it, it allows me to ask this question is because there are folks who may want to take action. So my question to you now is, um, what can we do? What can our listeners do to make an impact in these areas that you're so passionate about? Yeah, I think...
5: First is join your local community boards oftentimes uh when it comes to housing projects there is often um, zoning or rezoning regulations where there is a local board that makes the determination mm-hmm. and so if you can join your local community boards because it is important for um, folks to have a say so there mm-hmm. um, the other thing to do is to be in touch with your local elected officials because oftentimes they are either voting on housing uh, proposals or and or they're appointing people to boards who are voting on housing proposals. And so what that looks like is wherever you live, there probably is going to be a new you know swanky luxury development, tall building, unaffordable that's being built near you within the within a mile mm-hmm. and. Before that came to be, people voted on it. And so it's important for you to have your say, so to let the elected officials know how you feel about it, whether they're going to stay in office or not. And the last part, of course, is if you want to start, if you want to build in your communities, I am a huge believer in community economic development that looks like contributing nonprofits, building the barbershops, building those local small businesses um, that really foster the culture of a community
4: okay understood i feel like there's there's something to be said about i heard it in your voice too when you were talking about a luxury uh, apartment building that's being developed and i think where my mind took me when you said that is that it they're building it for the people who are in the least need or they need it the least and I'm sure it's probably because they don't want to deal with lower income renters, but that's obviously what the community needs. So I, I think your approach is is brilliant. And I, I think this whole career path that you're on is is absolutely commendable. So um, what can we do to support you and keep up with what it is you're doing? Your, your website, social media, anything like that? Uh,
5: my Twitter handle, if it's going to still be around. Uh,
4: fan is base, we're promoting fan base over here. So.
5: I know, right? uh, is Leah from Brooklyn. Uh, so that's my name. L E A H F R O M B K L Y N. I'm actually very active and I actually post quite a bit about housing every day. I post something new that's going on. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn under my full name, Leah Goodridge. Uh, I post less about housing there, but I do talk about what it's like being, uh, a black professional in navigating the workplace and all of the different machinations. I wrote an essay called professionalism as a racial construct that most people know me for. Mm-hmm. And, um, I often talk about those sorts of things. So, uh, two eggs, two eggs, two different places. If folks want to find me on those two platforms.
4: hey, We'll take it. No, I, I, I heard you mention, uh, an essay that many people know you for. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and for for folks, other folks who may not know um, about it?
5: Sure. Uh, I wrote an essay called Professionalism as a Racial Construct. And basically uh, for folks, you know, you can't see me, but um, I'm a black woman and I've been working as an attorney for the last 10 years. But regardless of what actual profession I am, I wrote about what it's like navigating the workforce, um, especially June, 2020, which I felt like for most black people was, you know, everyone, well, I don't know about everyone, but I know for me, uh, and most people I know, we definitely had a like, wait a minute, like we, I need to move differently.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: And so basically what the essay was, was challenging the concept of professionalism, uh, and that it's a one-way street. I'm an attorney, I go to court. Oftentimes I will have a white opposing counsel and oftentimes a white peer. There's only 4.5% of black attorneys. And sometimes they yell, shout, insult me, insult the judge, and it's fine. Nothing happens to them. If I were to do the same, I would definitely be admonished. And Mm -hmm. so that's what I mean when I say professionalism is a one-way street. And so I challenged that notion to say that what exactly does it exist for It exists to subjugate people of color in the workplace.
4: Mm, Okay, so if if folks wanted to to read this and get a firsthand account of it, how would we go about finding it?
5: Uh, You can Google professionalism as a racial construct or um, actually when you Google my name, it comes up. It's really funny because people started telling me that whenever they Google, it it comes up as professionalism. So I'm like, oh, Lord, people (laughs) (laughs) think I'm unprofessional. So if they don't know the context, why is professional coming up? Um, But, yeah, it's called professionalism as a racial construct. It's been. um, I am particularly proud of the fact that I have been on multiple social media platforms, Twitter. LinkedIn and I will log on there and people who I've never met I don't know are just you know posting about it and posting sure. about it in their experiences so it's kind of become its own term which sure. I have to copyright but yes <laughs>
4: yeah it's a trade market. I'm learning all about that myself yeah. <laughs> so uh, there it is well um that's that's definitely something I want to check out I'll be honest I haven't uh uh, checked it out myself, but it sounds like something that's right up my alley. So um, I, we appreciate your contribution to the culture. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for coming on and uh, sharing you. your insight with us today. Once again, today's guest is Leah Goodridge, the managing attorney for housing policy and MFJ's housing practice.
5: Thank you. Thank of you course. so much.
1: This is Carmela Denise, and before we go, I'll leave you with a passage from the Equal Rights Center by Asta Priti. While most people are aware of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as a civil rights movement leader, fewer are familiar with the role he played in the fair housing movement. During the early 20th century, Black Americans were systematically deprived of sufficient quality housing because they were routinely and openly excluded from living in certain areas. Discrimination, intimidation, exclusion and even violence segregated and regulated black people to low-income areas with poor quality housing. While progress has definitely been made, we still have a long road ahead. However, through efforts of people like Leah Goodrich and the support of people like you, we undoubtedly will make it to the promised land. This has been a production of the Black Information Network. Today's show was produced by Chris Thompson. Have some thoughts you'd like to share? Use the red microphone talkback feature on the iHeartRadio app. While you're there, be sure to hit subscribe and download all of our episodes. Be sure to follow our host, Ramses Jha, on all social media. And join us tomorrow as we share our news with our voice from our perspective, right here on the Black Information Network Daily Podcast.
6: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you.
2: information.